I'm excited to, am I mic'd on sort of kind of a little bit? Good. Uh, I'm excited to be teaching this series, uh, Is God Guilty of Fraud? It's our chance to look and examine some issues about God and about our Christian walk and about our faith in a way that, that hopefully will enrich our understanding of who God is, enrich our understanding of who we are, and enrich our understanding of what this life is about and what can fairly be expected and where we should try to grow. So we're going to finish the issues this week of God of war or God of peace. And the plan is next week for me to commence the, the part of this series where we ask the question, okay, God of faith or God of science? God who says, go, your faith has made you well um, and, and heals right and left. Or God for whom we pray for healing, from whom we pray for healing and and all too often just don't seem to get it. Um, uh, wh- what's going on here? Where, where, what's the role of science? What's the role of medicine? What's the role of doctors? What's the role of the miraculous? And what is a miracle? And, and how does all of that fit together? So that will be coming starting next week. But this week we need to finish this series up, uh, this, this segment within the series, God of War or God of Peace. And the process that we've used for this is actually nothing original. This was Aristotle's process for trying to sort through a problem. It's where you first ask what the question is that you're trying to address. Identify the question and once you do that, look at various approaches that others have come up with before you then make your own suggestions as you think it through yourself. So within the framework of that, week one was one where we set out the question and we asked, what's wrong with this picture? And the passage that we used was from 1 Samuel 15 where God said, go strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Don't spare them. Kill both man and woman. Kill both child and infant. Kill both ox and sheep. Kill both camel and donkey. And that's a stunning different idea of who God is compared to the blue skies and rainbows and sunbeams from heaven, which is what we sang in youth group was all we could see when the Lord was living in me. And we never had the chorus in the middle unless you were from Amalek, in which event God hates your guts and wants you dead along with your children. That wasn't in our song. We were taught, you heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I, Jesus, the Lord God, said to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Which is it? What we're looking for here is some consistency, please. Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ, God, is the same yesterday and today and forever. Okay, well, what gives? Because these seem to be totally opposite to each other. It's a fair question to pose. It's a fair discussion to have. It's a fair challenge to make. And I believe God is up to the challenge. I don't think we need to run from it and just say, well, I can't understand God. His ways are dark and mysterious. I'm not saying we get ultimate answers that are fully answers, that fully resolve our questions. But I am saying we can find true answers that help us understand and process this. So if that's the question that we're trying to probe, we then spent a week and a half looking at various approaches to these answers. These approaches were all over the map. These approaches included things like altering the text. In ancient times, that's when they would hand write the text and and hand copy it. And they would make changes in the text to make it read the way they thought it should read. In more modern times, you'll find... Now, I came across a book uh, just in the last couple of weeks by a very contemporary writer who's a good Christian fellow. Writes some stuff I really, really like and have grown from and appreciated. But it wasn't this comment. His attitude was basically take your Bible, turn in the Old Testament to the book of Malachi at the very end, and you'll find a division there at the end of Malachi that's got Old Testament and New Testament. 
And once you get there, just tear it out and put the Old Testament away. Because we're people of the New Testament, not the Old Testament. And the Old Testament has passed away. It was, quote, nailed to the cross. That's altering the Bible. The Old Testament was not nailed to the cross. The Old Testament was not thrown away. When Paul wrote Timothy and said, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and training, that you'd be complete and equipped for every good work. Paul's talking about the Old Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John had not even been written when Paul wrote that to Timothy. So we don't alter the text. We don't throw away the Old Testament and say, well, that was then, this is now. And heavens, we don't alter God. We don't say, well, he messed up. That was grumpy God. No, that's not our recourse either. Our recourse is not to say that God just changed his mind. God's bipolar. I mean, that's honestly what the approach, people don't say it more piously. Well, that was the God of the Old Testament. Come on. He's the same God. There's one God. Some people will alter how we read the Bible. They'll alter how we see God. They'll say, well, we just perceive him different. Those are not the right ways to approach this. So I want to give you some things to think about. I want to give you some ideas and some considerations. This is Mark Lanier, your lawyer, as well as your life group teacher talking to you this morning, okay? What I'm giving you are considerations, not solutions. This is not a conundrum or a problem we solve. This is something we duly consider. We chew on this. One of the hardest things when my kids were growing up as a parent is trying to give them honest answers to good, thoughtful questions when the answer is never as clear-cut and as black and white as their young minds understood issues to be. Some parents relegate that with simply, because I told you so. <laughs> Ms. Carolyn said, Amen. Some, some, some parents, and I've taken refuge in that before myself. But as a practical matter, I would like to explain things as best as I can, but still maintain honesty. And I remember one time our son, Will, was in about third grade. And he asked me a question, and I gave him an answer. And he said, Dad, have you ever noticed when I ask you questions and you give answers that you never speak in absolutes. He used a different word. And he said, you always hedge. There's always like room for, you know, a little bit soft corners. And he's right because there, there are some things in this life that you can give hard, fast answers to. Two plus two is four. It's not five and it's not three. It's four. If you think it's something different, I want to trade money with you. <laughs> if you think two plus two is five, I'll give you two plus two. And you give me a five back. And pretty soon you'll change your mind. If you think two plus two is three, you give me... Two plus two, and I'll give you three. 
pretty soon you'll change your mind. There are absolutes that I can give you absolute answers to, but there are some problems that, that I'm treating you immaturely if I give you the fake, false, platitude answer. So for a lot of this, this is like, grow up. This is the thing, man, you're in high school, you're in college, these are your questions. Young adult, these are your questions. Fantastic. That's the age to ask them. We're going to grow up through this. You're 60, 70 years old. Janet Seifert today turned 60 or 70. I don't remember which. It's her birthday. (laughs) Silent Bob just scooted a little bit further away from Janet. (laughs) Y'all can see Janet. She's over there where the steam's rising. Um, You're 60 years old. You're, You're whatever age you may be. Let's grow up in this. We're going to look at this. These are hard answers. They're considerations. They're not solutions. Okay? Now, I'm also, I told you I'm talking to you as a lawyer, too. Here's the deal. Lawyer, God's innocent until he's proven guilty. Don't assume he's guilty and a bad God over this stuff. Let's give him the consideration and the time. Fair? So with that, I think that the approach to this needs to be the approach we had in law school. I was talking to Mike Moriarty, my lawyer, uh, before class started over here. I don't know where Mike's seated. Mike's, there he is, right back there. Mike's a great lawyer buddy of mine, and, and Mike would be the first to tell you law school is a scary proposition in part because the professors teach with the Socratic method. That means they ask you questions, and they're not multiple choice. They will grill you, and the goal is for you to learn through their questions. They don't really stand up and give lectures. Let me tell you what tort law is. It's read this case, and you tell me what tort law is. And, 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 and it's, it's challenging, and you get cross-examined as a student. But it's ingrained within me as a lawyer to learn this way and to teach this way. This is the way we teach juries the truth about a case. It's not by me just standing up and telling them or reading it to them. It's by me asking witnesses questions and the other lawyers doing the same. There is a great way to pursue truth in asking questions. The key is asking the right question. See, we often get twisted with the wrong question. The question itself, if the question's wrong, you sit there and you get challenged by someone and you stumble and you don't know how to answer. Oftentimes it's because they've asked you a bad question. It just didn't occur to you it's a bad question. The classic example, have you stopped beating your wife? What are you going to say? Yes. Well, no. What? You lose, lose if you never beat your wife. Here's a more typical example. This was sent to me recently. I was suggested to have a lecture on this topic. The topic that was sent to me for lecture was this. The Bible or the Enlightenment, which is the source of American religious liberty? Now, you might look at that and think, that's a pretty good question. No, it's not. That's an improper question. That question assumes, rightly or wrongly, that the source of American religious liberty was either the Bible or the Enlightenment. Well, what if it was a combination of the two? What if the Bible was the source for the Enlightenment? What if they're so interconnected that you can't draw them apart? What if there was a third influence and that was some wild-eyed idea of the Founding Fathers based on a personal agenda they had with King George who hiked up the price of their tea? 
You, you've got to make sure that the questions are proper. You can have a great sounding question that's not a proper question. And sometimes you just have to say, eh, unfair question. So if we're going to dig into this, I want to dig into it. I want to give you considerations, but I want to do it in the form of questions that are fair and proper questions. Here's an example dealing with this class. Why would a loving moral God use evil or allow evil to occur? Well, that's a bad question. That's not a fair question. It's a logical question. It's a question I've asked. It's a question most of you have asked. But we need to start by dissecting the question itself. Because otherwise we will assume that question to mean something that it doesn't mean. I mean, what that statement really is, why would a loving moral God use evil or allow evil to occur, is basically this. If I were God, I wouldn't allow things like that to happen. It's just cloaked in different questions, in, in a question form, an interrogative. That's what it's saying. If I were God, I wouldn't allow things like that to happen. So I want to ask for your consideration four questions. These are the four questions, by the way. I work really hard to try to find slides that reflect the diversity of our class. Men, women, old, young, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different everything. I'm the guy on the right in my brain. <laughs> I decided not to put a picture of Becky up here because she's so pretty people wouldn't understand it. So I got these two ruffians instead. And the fellow on the right, that's Hank when he was younger. <laughs> Miss Carolyn sent me that picture. Um, four questions I want to ask. And I think these are fair questions. And I think these give insight into the answers, the considerations. First question, what is evil? Now, just think for a moment. Don't just answer, Hitler. That's an example of evil. That's not an answer to the question. What is evil? How would you define evil? Some people will say, evil is pain. Evil is just getting hit by lightning or something hurting. If something hurts, it's evil. If something's in pain, it's evil. You should not cause pain to anyone or anything. I don't think that's an adequate definition. Many of us will go to the doctor at some point in our life and have surgery. It is painful. It hurts. Do we say that the doctor is morally evil because the doctor made us hurt and caused us pain? No. The pain was there for a greater good. Pain is not in itself evil. Well, why would God allow someone to hurt? Hurt in itself is not evil. Hurt can have a better good in light of the disease and the circumstances that are there. I told you now, this is a class for growing up. This is not, gee, I want to make you feel schmaltzy good about everything. This is real world stuff. Because these are real world questions and they deserve real world considerations. So you say, well, all right, maybe it's not pain for the greater good, but maybe the reason would be evil is pain without good motives. At least the surgeon had good motives. 
but uh, causing pain or having pain or being hurt without good motives, nah. And that's not good either. That doesn't work. Pain itself is a sensation. It's a sensation of neurons in our brain registering something, either physical or emotional. Pain is a recognition, if it's physical, it's something sensory. It's something that your senses are feeding to the brain. You might have an amputation and feel like your foot that was amputated is still hurting. That is a sensation that's being fed through the nerves that think the foot's still there. You can have tingling in your leg and pain in your leg that's caused by a disc in your back that's herniated or the the jelly and the jelly donuts sticking out onto the nerve. Everything ultimately is about donuts. In between your vertebra, you've got these discs and they're like little jelly donuts and they've got this nucleus pulposus in the middle. And if it herniates or breaks and it comes out and hits that nerve that's coming out of your spine down there and going down your leg, your leg hurts. But the pain is there in your back. I mean, the the source of the pain. It's just it goes up to your brain. All pain is is this nerves in your brain that are saying there's a problem Pain identifies problems. For pain itself to be a problem, you can't say, well, pain without motives is, is evil. No, pain identifies problems, whether the motives are good, bad, or otherwise. Identifying a problem is not evil. Say, well, well, I'm talking about emotional pain, emotional pain. Even emotional pain identifies a problem. I don't have emotional pain over everything that's fantastic. All right, gluttony and overeating. That's a different thing. But other than that, so what is evil? Let me ask it this way. Is evil a fact or is evil an opinion? If we want to talk about how I feel, uh, evil is whatever I feel. Uh, I've, Mike Moriarty, who was the judge, the Supreme Court justice that was Potter Stewart, who said, I don't know how to define pornography, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> because he had a case in front of him of, of, is this pornography or is this artistic expression? You can find plenty of nudes in the Louvre but they're not supposed to be pornographic. But somewhere that there's that line. And he's writing a Supreme Court opinion and he's, he's trying to say, I, 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 don't, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. This is pornography. Hence, it was illegal at the time. And is, is evil the kind of thing I can't define, but I know it when I see it? It's whatever I feel it is? I hope not. That's an opinion. That makes evil changes one day or another. Changes from one person to another. It is the most subjective of things. I don't think that's a fair thing. I don't think anybody wants to say evil is fairly subjective. If so, it allows me to do something to Brent that may be evil to him, but to me it's a good thing. I think I'm going to steal his billfold. He says, well, oh, don't do that. That would be evil. It would cause me pain. Yes, but it would make me feel very good. <laughs> Your pain is my good. And you can't blame me because that's how I feel. And evil is how I feel. No, that doesn't work. And no society can be built that way. People say, well, it's, it's how society feels. How most people in society feel. No, that allowed them to set up concentration camps and take out the Jews and, and, and in, in Germany and, and in the era of influence, the Jews, those that, that, that were um, physically uh, um, uh, uh, not deemed to be worthy either because of genetics or because of heritage. 
because of sexual orientation. There are a ton of people that were put in concentration camps and killed because the society felt it was a good thing to do to help further the evolution of the human species to what it could become. To use the limited resources that are there on those that are most worthy to be reproducing. So that was a justification of a society. But we would still say that was evil. Because what a society feels is not adequate to define evil. Some people will say it's historical values. It's... Um, Whatever has developed over time in human culture to bring us to where we are today to acknowledge those things of human values and rights that we have today. Well, that sounds really good, but it's not an adequate answer. I mean, what got us here today includes slavery. What got us here today includes horrible treatment of people. What got us here today includes some atrocities of genocide. Ask the Native American population how that worked out for them. You can't just say, well, the historical values. That, that is a cop-out for saying, we just know what we think is right today and what we feel is what we want to say is right, but we're trying to give some objective basis because it doesn't sound too good to say, well, it's just what we choose. But that winds up being opinion, no less. So is evil fact or opinion? What is evil? To someone who believes in the biblical God, the God of the Old Testament and New Testament, the one God, the one thing that is apparent is that evil and good are defined not by how we feel, not by how our culture feels, not by how our history feels, but they are defined by the nature, the moral nature of a moral God. They're not defined by us down here to be projected onto God. They are defined by who God is to be understood by us and accepted by us. They're top down, not bottom up. It's no longer arbitrary, capricious, opinion, subjective. It is objective, true reality that there is a God who has a moral character and whatever his moral character is, is what we call good. What his moral character is not. What is a cancer? What is a destruction? What is an immoral reflection of his character is evil. Now those are definitions. Those are biblical definitions. It's Luke 18, 19, where Jesus says, why are you even calling me good? Have you thought about what you mean when you say good teacher? There is nobody who is good, pure, unadulterated, 100% good than God. That's why Paul is able to say in Romans three twelve, there's no one who's good. There's not anyone who does a good deed. Not even one. God alone is the true definition of good. And the best human deed is tainted with at least a little bit of selfishness. So good is a definition that is drawn from the moral character of a moral God. And it's been that way all the way throughout Scripture. Isaiah 64, 5 says the same thing. It's a, it says it kind of in an interesting poetic way. i got a lot to get through today. So we're just maybe here till about 2 this afternoon. 64, 5. Look at this. Look at this. This is really cool. This has got some Hebrew in it. You'll like this. God says, uh, Isaiah says to God, You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. God meets the one who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you, God, in your 
ways. Now, that's Hebrew parallelism. If you don't know what that is, keep coming to class because I'll talk about it in more depth later. If you remember what that is, it's where one phrase repeats another. Just uses different words to give extra meaning. It's a poetic way of writing in Hebrew. What it means is, the one who works righteousness, which I'll underline in red, is the one who remembers God in God's ways. God in his ways is what is righteous. That's how we know what righteousness is. We look to God. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, this is how we define good and evil. It's the moral nature of a moral God. So let's give an example. Let's give a case study here. Let's talk about death. I've got a real good friend in here who lost his mom this last week. My sweet wife, uh, my mother-in-law, passed away last month. Death is a part of this era that we live in post-Garden of Eden. We live, as I said last week in the, the, the big house, we, we live in an era of death. God, the day you eat of that fruit, you'll die. Yeah, we live in that, that day, that era of death. I mean, it's what we live in. Now you say, yeah, but, all right, my grandmother Catherine, my mom's mom, died when she was 92. And you say, you know, I wish she'd had a little more time. I miss her. I think she'd love seeing some things that the, her great-grandchildren have done. I think she'd have enjoyed having more time with my mom. I know my mom would have enjoyed having more time with her mom. There comes a time where we're all going to die. Is a good God a God who says, no, I'm not going to let that happen? I mean, do you want to be 150 years old? Moriarty, I keep picking on him. He's the one who said to me, he said, Lanier, you get so old at some point that when you wake up in the morning, you're just always hurting. He said, I woke up the other day and I didn't hurt anywhere. And I immediately went <laughs> to see if I was alive. <laughs> I mean, do you want it? Maybe you, God should let us live to 150 and keep us healthy. So we can like slam dunk basketballs at 150. Not that Steph Curry can do it at 30. But... Sorry, it was toward the end of the game last night. We'd already basically won when he made that humiliation move. And, uh, and if he's watching this, because I know he's a believer, love you. <laughs> Hope we beat you. Love you. Love the fact you love the Lord. Keep it up. I mean, do we want to... Here's the deal. Within all of us is an understanding that there ought to be more to life than this. And there ought to be joy. And, and the misery that comes with death and the isolation and the loneliness and the missing and the grieving and the mourning are not what we were made for. It's not what we're meant to be. And we don't like it and we don't want it to be that way. The problem is, that's what sin did, not God. God gave us a warning. He said, don't do it. If you do it, you usher in the era of death. And Adam and Eve said, and ushered it in. And you say, yeah, I've been mad at my lineage for ages. Those great, great, great to the 59th power grandparents of mine, Adam and Eve, they messed it up for all of us. Don't forget what Paul said in Romans 12 too. He said, oh, no, it's not 12 too, it's 323. Different passage than I put up there just now. Ignore that. 323, he says in Romans 323, 
all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So you can't just blame Adam and Eve. All right, so we've talked about what evil is. Question number two, so why is it in the world? And I made some reference to this. We live in a world where we can sense good things. We live in a world where there's still beauty to be had. We've got a grandbaby, Ebba. There's beauty in this world. Our daughter Gracie is pregnant with our soon-to-be-born uh, in four months or so, five months, grandson. They're going to name him John Henry Thee the Fourth. We're calling him Quattro. <laughs> Unless he becomes a doctor, and then we'll just call him IV. Or maybe if he's a gardener, it could be Ivy. But that sounds more effeminate. We'll just stick to Quattro. There's beauty in this world. We sense it. We know it. We long for it. We, we love beauty. How many of you have gone to look for a place to live? Where you said, I'd really like no landscaping and drab gray concrete walls with no real lighting. I'm looking for the most ugly place I could possibly grow up. Nobody. We want a place of beauty. We want, okay, true. You look at the way some people dress and you think, no, they're not really there. But generally... We try to find things that are beautiful and good. We know that concept exists. But we also see that the beauty of this world is marred by sin. There's nothing more invigorating and wonderful than, the, than life. And a new life and a new baby being born. And you smell that baby's head. And you hold that baby and you think of the dreams of what can happen in that baby's life. But did you know that death is in the future for that baby? I sat with a man last night whose 40-year-old son or the son in his 30s yesterday afternoon. I, I met with a man for an hour whose son has been told by the doctor he's got five years left to live on the outside. I think the quote was, you won't be here in five years. He's a 35-year-old man with a five-year-old son and a wife. who's struggling and hoping against hope because the beauty of this world is marred by sin. God told them, you eat of the fruit, you set yourself up, you live in rebellion against me, and what will happen is death. It's as certain as if you stick your finger in a fire, you're going to burn. And if you do it, and you've been warned not to do it, and you do it, and you think, well, I never would have done that. Oh, come on. Be honest with yourself. How many things do you do each day that you know aren't right? Come on now. You don't, don't raise your hand. Don't talk out loud. <laughs> but be honest inside. How many of you honestly always choose to do the right thing? To think the right thing? The beauty of this world is marred by sin. That's what happens. And that's the Romans 3.23. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. It's not just something we can blame on them. Sin brings destruction to the beauty of what God is about. Don't blame God for evil in the world. God's the reason the world is here. But what he did is he gave us an ability to make choices. That's what it means to be made in his image, in part. We actually can make choices. We're not, look, look, if you are going to choose to drink to excess, and by that I'm referencing alcohol, not water. If you are going to drink alcohol to excess and then get behind the wheel of a car and drive... God is not the cosmic breathalyzer 
that is going to keep your car from starting and intervene in all of human nature because you chose to do so. You can make choices that have bad consequences. And that's the way, that's, that's big girl and big boy talk. When we're little, our choices generally don't have that much ramification. But the older we get, Brittany, I told you I wouldn't call you up on stage today. How old are you? 17 years old. When she's 17 years old, you can make choices today that will alter your life dramatically. Whereas your mom and dad probably kept you from doing that when you were two. There's only so much a two-year-old can do. But the older we get, the more dramatic those choices. But all of the choices have consequences. We live in a cause and effect world. God doesn't change cosmic reality by making us a computer program that must do exactly what he says. We choose. Evil is a marring of God's goodness when we choose something less than God's holiness. And it's in our world because our world is a fallen world. So the question that I think is a fair third question is, where is God in the midst of this evil? Okay, we've got evil. Well, where's God? What's he doing about it? God is suffering. God is suffering out of love. God does not rejoice in evil. He doesn't make his day. He doesn't get a thrill out of seeing the consequences. It breaks his heart. Jesus wept over the death of Lazarus. Broke his heart. Oh, he's going to raise him from the dead. But it's the death that's part of this life that is not the way God wanted it to be and not the way God expects it to be. And when Jesus took on our sin, Jesus himself suffered. Suffered in ways that we cannot understand or fathom as he suffered as a human, though he was God. He stepped into this world and he suffered. He sought to bring life into this world of death. He sought to bring good out of this world of evil. Don't blame God over bad stuff happening. That's not fair. Yeah, but he's all powerful. The, the, get away from that word. The, that word's appropriate in its context and time and place. But God made you and I in, with an ability to make choices. And our choices have real consequences. So don't blame him. Last question I think is worth of consideration. What's the future of evil? The morgue. God's going to put it to death. God's going to end it once and for all. There's a cosmic battle. He's already shown us the victory. He's shown us the path to victory. He's already done the work. He's going to bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus when Jesus returns. But the future, look, evil, God's not fixing evil by gradually getting it better and better and better. I'm going to take that bad evil and I'm going to make it a little better each day. That's a weight loss program. That's not the solution for evil. I'm going to lose a little bit each day. Pretty soon I'm going to be that kid that was in that picture. It's coming back. I know it is. No. Maybe for Hank, that'll be here one day, Hank. But you're going to have to get a wig, brother. 
I'm just telling you, the solution to evil is not getting it a little bit better each day. God says evil's going to die. Is God guilty of fraud by God of love, God of war? No, absolutely not. Here are your take action steps to go home. Number one, I want to seek a mind change. I want to change the way I see this. I'm going to ask God for this. I want, I want to grow up. This, the, I, I, I've struggled with how to teach this class today. Because I think there's a chance people will watch this on the internet when they're hurting and struggling and they're trying to find answers in life. And I want to be sensitive to that and not just deal with this in, in a cold academic fashion because these are real-world questions. They're real-world questions that you can ask in a cold academic fashion, but they're also questions that, that when the rubber meets the road, when we're in the midst of despair, when we feel abandoned, when we feel hurt, when we feel lost, when we don't know answers, when we're just fretting, when, when the diagnosis is not good, when the, 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 the results are not good, there are times where this is, is more sensitive to us than others. And I want to be sensitive to that. But I also want to give a clear view of something that needs to happen here. We need to do what Paul said in Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't, don't just let the world suck you in to its thought patterns. That's what he means there. Don't let the world suck you into its ways of thinking. But be transformed. Be changed. By the renewal of your mind. Let God work on our minds to help us grow in our understanding. Then we're going to have an ability to discern things. We're going to have an ability to better understand things. We'll better understand what's the will of God. We'll better understand what is good. We'll better understand what's acceptable, what's perfect. We'll have much better thoughts about this. We'll have much greater clarity as our minds are renewed. What does that mean? Draw close to God. That's who renews your minds. Spend time in worship. The presence of God will renew your mind. Spend time in His Word. The Word of God will be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. And it will enrich and invigorate and renew your mind. Spend time studying with us. It will build you up and it will give you the system and the support you need for when the storms of life come. So that your boat may rock. But you will not sink. And then wait for the healing. I'd love to tell you that none of you are ever going to die. Instead, I'm going to tell you, you live in a body of death, but God's got an eternal destiny for you, and you have an eternal spirit within you that will inhabit an immortal body one day. That there will be healing. That he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And death will be no more. There won't be mourning. There won't be crying. There won't be pain. All of these things will have passed away. But between now and then, there are going to be some days that are fantastic. And there are going to be some days that bite. So what I'm going to do in the meantime is I'm going to struggle for God's good. I'm going to struggle for God's good. This world and God's beauty and his goodness have been marred by sin, but I'm going to struggle for God's good. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Jesus, when did we do that, Jesus? When you did it to one of the least of these. 
God's here to help pain. God's work is the work to try to bring the healing. The kingdom will come. But Jesus still teaches us to pray. Lori Tischler is going to start a prayer group in here. I see it coming. Jesus teaches us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, right now, right here, as it is in heaven. I want to do the things of God. I want to struggle for God's good. I, just because, hey, there's going to be healing, doesn't mean, well, suck on it till then. No. Let's do what we can to help alleviate the healing, uh, the, the, the hurting. Let's comfort those who need comfort. Mourn with those who mourn. Don't write it off. Don't go up and say, go be warm and filled. I'm hungry. I'll pray for you. (laughs) Don't have time to right now. I got to get to McDonald's. (laughs) No, we've got to struggle for God's good. We got to try to find it. Doesn't mean help people sustain misery. But it means find the best way to help them. For some, it's, it's not give them a fish, it's teach them to fish. As Greg and I were discussing in emails last week. But for some, it's give them a fish while you teach them to fish. We've got to do that. That's our job. Okay? Ideas. Considerations. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus? And I hope that you have a wonderful week. Father, I ask your blessings right now through the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, through your substitution act on the cross, Father, where you took our place. I ask in a just way now that you and your love and mercy can properly and will properly reach out to everyone who's hearing this message who's hurting. Father, minister to their heart and draw your people around to do that on your behalf. And to those people who are questioning God, renew their minds. Woo their hearts to seek your face. And for those of us who are your people who are around them, put us to work to help do that for them, Father. Bless us in the name of Jesus as we go forth. Give us the strength we need to walk as your people in faith this week to this observant world. May they see a reflection of your love and your goodness in the midst of sin's misery. Through Jesus, our righteousness, we say, Amen.